Welcome to the Longevity Forum podcast, a series on achieving longer, healthier, and more fulfilled lives for as many as possible. In this session, we are thrilled to be speaking with Steve Austin, Protective Life Endowed Chair in Healthy Aging Research at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, who will be interviewed by Andrew Steele, scientist and author of Ageless. I'll leave the rest to you, Andrew. Hello, thank you so much for letting me host one of these podcasts and um, very very excited to talk to Steve because actually I'm a big fan. Um, back when I was first getting into the world of sort of aging biology, it was another of his books called Why We Age. That was one of the first books that showed me that this is really a fascinating and important field. And Methuselah's Zoo, his new book, is an absolute page turner too. Um, the subtitle of that is What Nature Can Teach Us About Living Longer, Healthier Lives. And there's just this incredible diversity of aging rates in nature. There are some animals that, you know, just live a few minutes and there are trees that can live for thousands of years. And I think actually that's genuinely probably the most inspiring argument that I've come across, that aging, and that includes human aging, isn't just some fixed immutable process. Um, so let's get stuck in. Professor Stephen Austad, welcome to the Longevity Forum podcast. Uh, well, thank you. It's it's great to be here and, and great to hear that you read my earlier book. I, I love that. <laughs> So I believe you first became interested in aging because of opossums. And I thought I'm actually from a part of the world where opossums aren't native and I had to do an image search to find out what they look like. So could you start out by like telling us what opossums are and then tell us why they're a really fascinating example in the evolution of aging? Yes. Yeah, so opossums are uh, American marsupials. And I think a lot of people are surprised to find out that the Americas have marsupials or tend tend to be associated with Australia, but one third of all marsupial species are actually in the Americas. And I got interested in aging when studying one of these, which was the common opossum in Venezuela uh, in the 1980s. And my study had nothing to do with aging, but what it did uh, make me do is I had the opossum's radio collar and every once a month, I would go out and I would recapture them and I would look in their pouch and I would inspect them. And what I discovered was that they aged incredibly rapidly. They're, they're about the size of a, of a domestic house cat. Um, so I expected that they would live maybe 10 or 15 years. And I didn't expect in a study of three years, which is what I was doing, that I would probably see any signs of aging. But in fact, they went from being healthy, young, vigorous adults to really decrepit, uh, shrunken muscle, in parasite infected uh, old animals in a question of months. Um, as, as little as six months, I would see these dramatic changes. They would develop cataracts. I found opossums with cataracts. And that awakened my interest in exactly why they would age so quickly. I, I, you know, I think a lot of us just have this intuitive feeling that the size of something, particularly a mammal that we're very familiar with, tells us something about how long it's likely to it live and how long it's likely to stay healthy. And this violated every implicit assumption, uh, every gut instinct that I had. And that's really what got me started in the field. It's a, my curiosity was uh, sparked by that. And uh, here we are some 40 years later, it's still sparked by that. And I think the thing that fascinated me the most about these opossums is you've got these very, very short-lived ones on the mainland. But when you started looking into it, if you look on uh, at island populations, they often age in a surprisingly different way, even though obviously they're very closely related. Yes. And that was another surprise to me. So, so my original observations were in South America, but when I really wanted to do a formal uh, study of aging, uh, I was back in the States then. And 
there was an island off the coast of Georgia. Now, the reason that I ch chose to study an island population was that there was this evolutionary theory that suggested that animals that had been evolving for generations in a, in a relatively safe environment should evolve slower aging than animals that had been uh, evolving in a more dangerous environment. And the, the environment is really dangerous to opossums. About 80% of them actually die from predation. But on the island, there weren't any uh, predators of, the, uh, of opossums. And so I'd hoped that I would be able to detect that they were aging at uh, a slower rate. And in fact, that's exactly what I found. And, and the importance of that to me in the sort of the longer term lesson was that this island had only been an island for about 5,000 years, which is about 5,000 opossum generations, which suggested to me that changes in fundamental biology of aging can occur in as little as 5,000 generations, which means that it, our biology doesn't have to be tweaked that much to change the way in which we age fairly dramatically. I think that's a really, really important point. Now, actually, it's sort of surprising that we hadn't noticed this in, in, in some way. Because I, I think, um, so when I started writing my book, I sort of thought that there'd just be a nice, easy database of animal longevity that I could just look up. You know, I, I think I was quite naive about this. Perhaps it was coming from a physics background. Where obviously, you can measure everything really cleanly. But I think one thing that your book really beautifully paints is just the sort of the sheer complexity and mess, frankly, of trying to come up with these these estimates of how old animals are in the wild. So can you just sort of paint a picture of how, how challenging these experiments are and why it is that something that sounds quite obvious about these sort of different length of lifespans of animals has taken us so long to really get a full picture of? Yeah, yeah, it's it's surprisingly difficult, and and in fact, one of the issues is well, how exactly should we even measure animal aging? The way it's typically done for people who are interested in comparing lots of species is to take the oldest animal that ever been reported within a species and use that to kind of characterize the species' uh, longevity, and that has a number of problems with it. For one thing, it depends on how many animals you sample. Just like the the oldest person at your university is not likely to be as old as the oldest person in your town. And that person is not likely to be as old as the oldest person in your, your country. We have the same problem with animals. And there are some that we, we, we only have longevity data on a few dozen uh, species. In fact, I, I once looked at the pattern of longevity in birds across hundreds of species of birds, which also have this relationship where smaller body size in a species suggests it's going to live shorter. And it turned out the effect on the sample within a species had as big an effect as body size did. So that's one issue is, is it depends on how intensively species have been studied. The other thing is if we use that metric, there's a lot of motivation for people to exaggerate the age of animals. If it's a zoo animal and it's the oldest one of its kind, then it they can market that. And some animals, they actually have birthday parties every year for the animal and they get a lot of attention benefactors swarm to there. So uh, it turns out it's, 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 it's very complicated. And even with humans, um, you know, we have multiple reports and these never seem to go away. The mythical reports of people living 130, 140, 150 years in some remote population where only a few people have ever been. And the interesting thing is when you find those and they get eventually get debunked, it should have been easy to debunk them because almost always the oldest person is a male. And we know that men don't live as long as women, so it makes no sense on the face of it. So it's a very complicated uh, uh, business. And I think there's a lot of 
poor data. There's a lot of low quality data that's entered the field and, and been accepted by people who are not as familiar with the details of either field work or with uh, captive zoo populations as I fortunately happen to be. Yeah, I really uh, like this sort of quip in biogerontology that often the places with the highest life expectancies in the world are also the places that have the worst rec records of births and deaths, because there's just this incredible human element to all of these things as well. Um, so right. I was thinking, these um, sort of ecologists and field biologists, you're all out there measuring animal ages, and let's say you know, you've know you got your, your database. Um, you've got hundreds and hundreds of animals that we know the sort of lifespans of now, and you distill all of this complexity down into one number that you call the LQ, the longevity quotient. So I was hoping you could tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so so what I really thought is that there's this there's this very strong relationship between the size of an animal and how long it's likely to live. And that's not just true of mammals, it's true in birds, it's true in amphibians, it's true in it's even true in in mollusks like like clams and oysters. Um and there's a lot of reasons to to think that that makes a lot of sense because smaller animals, particularly birds and mammals, live at a faster pace. Their hearts beat faster. Their muscles contract faster. Um, their uh, genes are turned on and off faster. Lots and lots of, of things. And I thought, well, it makes sense that they would live faster and die sh sooner. But we have to have a way to sort of um, compare animals of a specific size. In other words, how would we say or not whether a sparrow aged more successfully than a mammal? So came up with this idea of the longevity quotient. And all that is, it's very simple, that if you take the relationship between body size and longevity and you sort of look at the average, you, you do a regression, as, as we say, and then you look at divergence from the, from the average. So does this animal live twice as long as would be expected for an average mammal of that size? Or does it live half as long? And the LQ is simply a number. So an LQ of one means it's an average mammal. It lives exactly as long as you expect. And L2 of two means it lives twice as long as you'd expect. And LQ of 0.7 or 0.5 means they live 70% or 50% uh, as long as expected. And when you do this, what you come away with was that humans are by no means at the top of the mammalian pyramid in terms of longevity. There are lots of species that are more successful at aging, measured this way, than people are. And it's those species that I think we're ultimately going to learn the lessons that are going to help us stay healthy longer ourselves. Yeah, and I guess the sort of the million, billion, trillion dollar question there is these animals that do have a higher LQ, high longevity quotient, why do they have that? And I, I think the, the example I found particularly fascinating in the book is these blind cave-dwelling salamanders. So, you know, these things, I think that you say they're less than the size of the span of your hand and they live for over a hundred years. So why is it that they are sort of better at aging than we are in some sense? Well, that is a very good question. And it's this very unique situation. And you remember when I was talking about my um, uh, opossums, that I was looking for a place with a really safe opossum environment. Well, here you have these salamanders that live in caves. They're the top predator in these caves. And it's a cold, very constant environment. So not only are you safe from predators because there are none in the cave for these particular salamanders, but the environment is very, very constant. And then, of course, they're ectotherms. They're cold-blooded and their body's metabolism will, will seek the rate that is appropriate for that temperature. 
So you put all these things together, they live slow metabolism, very constant environment, very safe environment for them. And you would predict that they would live a very long time, but also live very slowly, which they do. So I guess the question then for human beings, we are obviously hoping that some of the science in biogerontology is going to translate into human treatments at some point, you know, in a way that we're not just all going to have to go and live in an extremely dark cave where we're in a very safe environment and wait generations and generations to evolve some sort of super blind, exceptionally long lived humans. So how do we turn, you know, something like this, this incredibly strange sounding animal into something that we can actually, you know, use for a drug or a treatment in the clinic? Well, I, th I think there are animals that are long lived relative to humans. In, a, in the sense that they have a high longevity quotient, that we're likely to learn a tremendous amount that's relevant to humans and animals that are very interesting in their own right, but are going to teach us probably less that's relevant to humans. And I think this long life salamander is one of those that's less likely to teach us something just because the way they do it is by slowing down everything. And I don't think this is the way that anybody, any human, really wants to stay healthy longer is by, you know, only being able to walk a mile a day or, 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 you know, um, wait till they're 40 years old to have their first children. That, that, that's not it. But there are other animals. And I particularly focus on, on birds that I do think we have a lot to learn from. And the reason is that they also have high longevity quotients and they do it despite having traits that if we didn't know better, we would say they have to be short lived. They have a really high metabolic rate for their body size. They have a really high body temperature, a body temperature that would be a serious fever in a person. And third thing is that they have levels of glucose in their bloods that would make, that would be diabetic. And all those three things, high body temperature, high metabolic rate, high levels of blood glucose are things that in other contexts we know make a short life, make things live short. But here birds do this and they live incredibly long. And just to give you an idea, the other thing about birds is that they stay healthy to the end. Um, so a mouse, like our laboratory mouse or the wild ancestor of a laboratory mouse lives at the most in the wild where it's subject to cold and predators and infectious disease about a year. That's about as long as they ever live. They can live up to about three years in the laboratory. But a house sparrow, which is the most common bird in the world, it can live up to 20 years in the wild. And that's a dramatic difference. And they also have a higher LQ than, uh, th than we do. So we have lessons to learn about how to live at a, at, at a fast rate in spite of some physiological processes that um, would seem to be damaging. In all of that, they have somehow figured out evolutionarily how to get over, how to overcome the sort of inherently destructive processes of life uh, in a way that we would do well to learn about. And I think, you know, you're obviously quite bullish about this. So in 2000, you told Scientific American that you think the first 150-year-old person is probably alive right now. And obviously that was 22 years ago as we speak. Um, and this ended up culminating with you making a bet with Jay Olshansky. And so I wondered if you could just tell that story and also, uh, you know, how do you think that bet's going 20 years on? Ah, very good question. So yes, the way the bet arose was, uh, yes, I told at a, at a, it was a very small conference on the future of human longevity and a reporter asked a question 
when will we have the first 150 year old human? And um, we all looked at each other because nobody really wanted to say anything. And I finally blurted out, I think that person's already alive. And when this Scientific American article came out reporting that, uh, Jay Olshansky, who had been a friend for quite some time, called me up and said, you don't really believe that, do you? I go, yeah, actually, I do, Jay. And he said, well, why don't we have a wager? And the way the wager works is that he and I each put up $150 into an investment account. The idea was to wait till the year 2150, at which point, if there was a, a single person who had reached the age of 150 years and was still cognitively intact, capable of carrying on a conversation, then I would get all the money that had accumulated all that time, or I or my descendants. You know, I like to think I, but in reality, my descendants. And if not, then his descendants uh, would, would get all the money. And uh, we've had a great time with that bet. And in fact, there was a reporter in 2014 that got back to us to check in on how it was going and actually convinced us to double the bet. So we each put in another $150. And we calculated that the historic rate of growth of the stock market, that initial $300 bet would have grown to about $500 million. And since we doubled it, the idea was that it would be worth around billion dollars in the year 2150. So how do I feel 20, 20 year, 21 years, 22 years after the bet? It's pretty interesting. When we made the bet, the oldest person who had ever uh, lived at that point uh, lived 122 and a half years. Uh, and so we needed to have a person that lived roughly 20% longer than that. And in those 22 years, nobody's approached that age again. So Jay is feeling very, very confident. Uh, but I'm still feeling confident because one thing that's happened in the last five years or so is we have discovered many new ways that at least in our experimental animals, slow aging. And I think at least some of those ultimately will be applicable to humans. And the other thing, and this is what made me really feel good that we've discovered is that originally we thought that any really effective anti-aging advance would have to be started when people were young. But we now know from, from mouse work that you can start some of these things at the ages, the mouse equivalent of 60 or 70 years and still get a very big benefit in terms of extending health and extending longevity. So I, I think I have plenty of time uh, for us to keep developing these things such that I, st I still will win uh, the wager. Yeah, I think I might be on your side because you imagine someone who was born in the year 2000, which is obviously like the last possible minute for your bet to succeed, right? They're going to have potentially a hundred year lifespan, even with nothing in particular happening. And that's another, you know, 80 more years of medical progress. So it's really quite exciting what, you know, what anti-aging treatments could be available by the end of this century. Absolutely. And, and, and you're right about that. And, you know, it turned out, I, I think 150, just by accident, because this was picked out of the air by a reporter, but I think that's exactly the right age. The reason being, we're going to be living longer and longer because we're going to get better at uh, diagnosing diseases earlier and develop treatments that are better. But I don't think we're ever likely to reach 150 unless we find a way to really intervene in the aging process. And I think, I think we can be pretty confident now that we will ultimately be able to do this. And so, um, and, and Jay actually agrees. He thinks that that's 
possible. We just disagree on how quickly these things might be available uh, for people. So I like to end with the question that I love asking scientists who've got a sort of broad overview of their field. And imagine we've been talking about a billion dollars. Instead of waiting until 2150, if I could give you your billion dollars now, but the condition was you had to spend it on whatever sort of parts of aging research you find most exciting to try and propel those treatments forward and win that bet, what would you spend it on? And uh, how can we learn the lessons from some of the animals you talk about in your book? Uh, the advance that I'm most interested in now is this advance with transfusing blood. And the reason I'm that that strikes me is that's something, so the idea is that if you replace old blood with young blood, or what it looks like now is if you just dilute out old blood, that that can have a pretty dramatic rejuvenating properties. And the reason that I am particularly intrigued by this is that it it's not affecting anything very deeply about our biology. My thought is if you're in effect something as deep in our biology as aging rate, there are gonna be unanticipated side effects. And those may be side effects that are trivial and not a problem, but we don't know that. But simply undergoing blood transfusions of some form, we do this all the time. What we're going to need to do is we're going to need to figure out what is it in old blood that we need to get rid of, or is there something in new blood that we wanna add? And I think that that is going to really lead us. And that's something that could be available once we figure it out. Right off the bat, there are already human trials going on with both young blood and diluting old blood. Well, Professor Stephen Assad, it's been an absolutely fascinating conversation. I very much hope we can reconvene in 2150 to discuss what you're going to spend the winnings of your bet on. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. It's been wonderful talking to you, Andrew. We are very grateful to our sponsor, Juvenescence, which has made this podcast possible as part of Longevity Week 2022. For more podcasts, visit our website, thelongevityforum.com, or follow us on Twitter, longevity underscore forum.